So maybe many of you have noticed what I've noticed living in this world that we live in, which is that I find myself surrounded by this dominant society that it feels like is trying to sell me happiness in all different kinds of ways, or it feels like it's trying to convince me that there are particular places where I can find happiness in all kinds of forms, you know, whether it be the pull of consumerism, of buying things, or the fantasy of success, which so commonly comes with kind of a, a capitalistic perspective. Or it could be other things, like maybe the pursuit of that one person that you're going to find through that dating site. <laughs> or maybe it's just that happiness that is being tried to be sold to us of just the hit of stimulation that comes to our nervous system through checking email, or a text, or Facebook, or Twitter, or Instagram, or YouTube, and the list goes on, doesn't it? It's the world that we live in, the dominant world that many of us live in. And of course, it can take subtler forms, which I think are just things we've probably learned from dominant society. The, the, the promise of getting some kind of happiness by finishing a to-do list. As simple as that. Have you ever felt that impulse? So I think it's important to to acknowledge where we find ourselves in, in that allure of these, these narratives that we give of where happiness is or where our contentment is. And what I find is it fuels, it fuels this kind of mind, the mind of never enough, whether it be around things or relationships or success. It seems like there's always one more step and it can often feel like there's, that it's being sold to me in some kind of manner. So I feel this on an individual level. And then, of course, we can find it on the systemic level. I live in a society where, uh, or a country where there can be the feeling of never safe enough. We have the largest uh, military in the world. Supposedly, at least 10 years ago, our budget for our military uh, equaled that of the rest of the world. So that comes from a certain type of mind that we can never be safe enough or we have the highest incarceration rate in the world in terms of uh, the, the, the rate in terms of our population. Or we can never have enough when you think about the, the way consumerism happens on a systemic level. And I like to mention it so that you can remember that we come by this honestly, don't we? <laughs> if you think of the country that we live in. And it can lead to, maybe some of you know this, this uh, acronym FOMO, fear of missing out. <laughs> Supposedly now it's connected with uh, media use, especially around things like uh, uh, Facebook, where it can feel like uh, I'm always missing out in some kind of way. There's a never enough quality. So hopefully you've probably tasted at least a little bit that there's really no deep freedom or deep contentment within these pursuits uh, when I get lost in them or are controlled by them in some kind of manner. And maybe like me, you've experienced that. There's something hollow about that. There was a, 
great Thai forest monastic by the name of Ajahn Chah, and he, what I loved about him is he would give these, these down-to-earth uh, examples of, of our predicament. And he said, it's like a morning dove we keep in our home. We simply listen to its song and we praise it. Oh, how pretty, the sound of my dove. My dove has a low voice. My dove has a high voice, that sort of thing. We never ask the dove if it's enjoying itself or not. We give it rice to eat and water to drink, but everything is in the cage. And yet we think that the dove is satisfied. Have we ever stopped to think, if someone gave us rice and water and put us in a cage, would we be happy? In the same way, we're caged in this world, like the world I just described. This is mine, I have this, I have that. All kinds of things come in this world like this. But we don't actually understand our own condition. Actually, we're gathering stress and suffering into ourselves because we don't look deeply into ourselves. In the same way that we don't look deeply into the dove. It looks, it looks like it's living comfortably. It can drink water and eat food and we think that it's happy. And it's this kind of dynamic that's the same for us. And when I share that, sometimes it makes sense uh, to come back to some of the, the imagery and the metaphor that the Buddha uses in these kind of the, the, this early literature. You know, he talks about this dynamic in our lives where we're, we're chasing around like, like a, a rabbit caught in its snare, like we're just running around, but we can't get free in some kind of manner. Or being pierced like an arrow. Or another common one is just struggling with this flood, this flood of momentum. And I appreciate this, this imagery of a flood because so often when I think of how kind of systems and societies work, it can feel like a flood that I'm fighting against at times. And it's in the midst of this predicament that the Buddha teaches a particular path. It's kind of him naming, hey, this is what's going on in our lives in some kind of manner. And I want to point out, it's, it could be different for each and every one of us and different flavors of that. But this is what he's contending that, that we're facing is this kind of predicament often when we're human beings, is being sold kind of a happiness that really doesn't work. And then he gives a way to, to navigate it. He says, now it's this eightfold path, this noble eightfold path to be developed for direct knowledge of, comprehensive comprehension of and the total ending of this flood. And I think that's the moving thing to me about the spiritual practice is to be given a path that gives me a, a gateway to a, a deeper sense of freedom, to, to a possibility to, to taste a different quality of contentment, a different quality of happiness. 
And what I'd like to share is just one of the facets of what's called the Noble Eightfold Path to explain how this works or to see how these qualities, and just take one of these qualities, how it, how it addresses this and offers a different perspective on our lives and a different perspective on how to live our lives. And the one facet that I'd like to share about, which is part of the, the second part, the, you could say the, 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 the second path factor of, of the Noble Eightfold Path is renunciation. And, and I want to talk about it because it's so easily misunderstood. Like, I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I began to dip my toes into this practice and this path, I was interested in things like being present and getting a deeper glimpse of the way things are. But really, this word renunciation, I was not into at all. <laughs> you know, when I hear that word renunciation, I think of a bleak life filled with deprivation. <laughs> That's kind of my, my, my definition that I bring to it. So I think my first attitude towards this practice was meditation, cool, renunciation, no thanks. And so I think it's important to really understand what this is about. And even the Buddha, he was talking to his attendant about renunciation. This kind of eases my heart when I hear this, that he too was not so keen on renunciation when he first heard about it when he was practicing. For example, he says to Ananda, his attendant, he says, so it is, Ananda, so it is. Even I myself, before my full awakening, thought to myself, renunciation is good, seclusion is good. But my heart did not leap at renunciation, did not grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. <laughs> so we're in good company. So what is renunciation? What does the Buddha mean by renunciation in this particular context of early Buddhism? And I want to share with you a, a passage that comes from the Dhammapada, which is uh, these sayings from the Buddha, which gives me a gateway into something different than my own ideas about it. He says, if by renouncing a lesser happiness, one may realize a greater happiness, then let the wise one renounce the lesser, having regard for the greater. <laughs> Do you hear what renunciation is, is pointing to in this phrase here? You could say it's a movement of the heart. It's a movement away from something that brings me lesser happiness. So it's a movement away, definitely, but it's also a movement towards that which brings me greater happiness. The example I give to this is, it, and of course I have some bias here in terms of the kind of bread I like, but if you imagine that you spent your life eating like Wonder Bread, which I don't find so delicious, but you know, at first I did. And then, and then you experienced kind of the delicious taste of home-baked fresh bread. It wouldn't take any effort to stop eating the Wonder Bread if the fresh-baked bread was always around, right? It would just be, it'd be the clear thing to do. You would renounce the lesser happiness for the greater happiness. You wouldn't be depriving yourself of something because you're moving to something that, it, that has so much more happiness and contentment to it. So that's the first thing I want to point out about renunciation. It's not about letting go of something that I'm really into. 
It's about seeing that what I'm really into really isn't that great, and there's greater things around. And this is so important to understand that renunciation is intertwined with wisdom. It comes out of me understanding that the, the Wonder Bread isn't so great. So it's intertwined with what we're trying to cultivate here, this quality of, of wisdom. And in light of this, I want to point out with this definition, probably there's a good number of you that are here because this quality of renunciation has already happened in your life in some kind of manner. That maybe in some way you've pursued happiness or contentment in some manner in your life and you got burned like I did, where you just ended up with more suffering and more discontent rather than less. That you know in some way that a lot of the happiness that's being sold to you is just a sham. Because that's the movement of renunciation. It's seeing clearly what we're trying to be sold, whether it be out there or within our own minds. And it could be that kind of experience brought you to some kind of spiritual inquiry, some kind of spiritual path, with this, this vision that there's a deeper sense of contentment, a deeper sense of, of freedom. And I point this out so it's not something that's foreign to you. It's something that maybe your heart has already had that movement or continues to have that movement. And I would say that th this is, uh, in many ways, the heart of the, the, the movement into a spiritual life is this exact movement. And you see this in many spiritual traditions. It is a turning away of certain things of the world and a turning towards other things of the world that give us a deeper sense of, of what it is to live and to be. There's an expression of this in a, a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, <coughs> expressing this quality of renunciation and maybe even some specifics around it for her. And the title of the poem is The Art of Disappearing. It's like she's giving us here some, some advice or some suggestions. <coughs> When they say, don't I know you? Say no. When, you invite, when they invite you to the party, remember what parties are like before answering. <laughs> right? Someone telling you in a loud voice, they once wrote a poem. Greasy sausage balls on a paper plate. And then after considering, then reply. And if they say we should get together, say, why? <laughs> it's not that you don't love them anymore. Instead, you're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees. The monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project, and it will never be finished. <laughs> when someone recognizes you in a grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. 
When someone you haven't seen in 10 years appears at the door, don't start, start singing to them all your new songs. You will never catch up. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. What strikes me about that poem is I feel like she's being very clear. It's not about not connecting with others or not loving others or not having a chance for social engagement, but how when I can get lost in my life, I can forget what's really truly valuable for my life, what's truly important. And it's only after I remember that that I should decide what to do with my time. Because I know, I know for me how easy it is to forget what's truly important. And then I get lost in things that don't have the value that I want to commit myself to. Have you experienced that? <laughs> to me, this is so much of what the spiritual life is about, is just getting clear about this. So here we have it, this movement of renunciation, another aspect, remembering what's truly important to me. What's, what's truly important for this, this, such this ephemeral life that you're, that you're leading that's going to end sooner rather than later? So I want to talk about this quality of renunciation just a little bit more about what I'd call external renunciation and then internal renunciation. A kind of external renunciation that I feel like uh, is probably more and more important to me that feels like it's connected with a, a greater happiness or a greater contentment rather than a lesser uh, sense of contentment or happiness is this practice of doing less rather than more. And what I realized to do that, to engage in that practice, I have to put forth effort to do that. See that there's something about really cultivating space in my life, cultivating a sense of doing less. And again, it, it takes effort. As one poet said, this suggestion of besides the noble art of getting things done, there is the noble art of leaving things undone. The wisdom of life consists in the, elimina in the elimination of non-essentials. So in light of this, I think that the most important thing I hope you take away from this, this talk is, is just this question of what does renunciation mean for you? What does, how do you embody renunciation, this practice of letting go of a lesser happiness for a greater happiness? And how can you explore that practically in your life? And I want to point out that's going to be different for different people. And I don't know what's rele relevant or alive in your life right now around that. But it seems like a, a worthy movement to reflect upon if, if, if the spiritual life is something of value to us. So I don't know what that is, but I, I 
can guess that there also needs to be an internal shift for that to really take place. And again, a, a, a passage from a poem that I think expresses this is a, a, a poem from Alison Luderman from her poem, Sustain. She says, I'm learning to rest inside the word enough. It's rough, leathery consonants. It's F for finitude. Can you learn to rest inside that word enough? Oh, right now, right now is enough. Oh, this is enough right now. Or walking down the street is enough. The cool air tonight is enough. What would it be like to rest, rest inside of that? And do you hear how it has that quality of renunciation? Because it counteracts that message I'm always getting of not enough. And that ro robs me of my life when I get obsessed with that. And I want to point out with this kind of exploration, for me, it doesn't always mean that I'm, quote unquote, doing less in my life. Really, what I find in, the, in terms of this, this internal movement that I'm so curious about is how I'm relating to what I'm doing. I can do the same amount of things that I do in a day, but sometimes I go through them with this mind of busyness, like I really need to get them done. And other days, I can feel like, oh, I'm just doing what needs to be done. And it, it feels so different. And, and one label I think that can be so helpful around this, which I've, I know I've shared before, but I find it very helpful just in terms of my day, is just checking in every so often and to check, is there rushing? Oh, interesting, rushing is happening right now. And when I'm able to label rush, rushing, a lot of times what happens is then I come back into the moment just a little bit more. It doesn't necessarily mean that I slow down. It might mean I slow down. It might mean I'm going just at the same pace, but I'm actually here rather than trying to live in the next moment. So you might want to try that. What's that like? Just to notice, oh, rushing's here. Oh, it feels like this. Interesting. Oh, there's the hook of that. Trying to get more and more and more done, like it's not enough. And you might notice how unpleasant that feels <laughs> and how there's a lack of contentment when you're living in the world of rushing. That's what I notice. But I need to touch it because I have all these messages that I should be rushing. So I need to feel, I have to have the bodily experience so I get that that's just a sham that's being sold to me. Uh, one of the teachers I practice with, he, he puts it well, he, uh, Sokni Rinpoche, he says, the, the practice is to be very simple on the inside, like I just described, and then being on, complex on the outside is, is easy. It's okay to have complexity, but what's, what's going on on the inside? And I, uh, I like to take his father, Sokni Rinpoche, his father was Tokul Urgen Rinpoche, who was uh, one of the great Tibetan masters of the 20th century who um, 
was the head of actually a few different monasteries in, in Kathmandu when he was alive. And Sukhni Rinpoche would share the story of going to visit his father while his father was taking care of these monasteries. So if you imagine these different monasteries, that means he's responsible for literally hundreds of monks and nuns going through training. And every moment of his day, he's usually in meetings or navigating things, making sure that things are going on in the monastery. But there's just, Sakni Rupshe would talk about his father as just being completely at ease. And there was this quality of spaciousness that you would find around him because there was such ease and openness. Like no rushing whatsoever and, and this quality of really the simplicity of life and really being here. So taking care of a lot, but not rushing in a sense. And there was a, a deep sense of ease. And yet it was really contingent upon the quality of heart that he had. For example, Sokni Repuche said that usually he'd go visit his father at the monastery and after three days he couldn't take it any longer. So he really wanted to leave. And one time he asked his father if he could go on vacation. And his father came, uh, was from a generation of kind of tulkos where he didn't understand the word vacation. <laughs> so so, so Sokni Repuche would tell him, I want to go to Pokhara. And Pokhara is this, this, this city and in Nepal, kind of in the foothills of the Himalayas, known kind for, for a vacation. And so he'd ask his son, why do you want to go to Pokhara? Is there like a monastery that you want to go? And <laughs> or is there some kind of pilgrimage? And he said he couldn't explain to his father why he needed a vacation, because it didn't make sense to him. Because for him, there was so much ease in his life. I think this is what comes with this internal renunciation, when we can let go of these messages that we're given and touch something deeper. And I just want to end with a, a quote from Thomas Merton that, that I think also speaks to this. He says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. Frenzy destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. Those are strong words. That when you live a life like that, he's containing that, that you're acting violently. But that's an act of violence that you're committing, obviously to ourselves, but also to the world that we're living in. Doing that is, is not a contribution. It's, it's fueling a kind of dynamic that's not so helpful. So to renounce, renounce a lesser happiness for a greater happiness. So tonight for the sit, I invite you to just keep it simple, to see if you can taste the simplicity of, of this willingness to be here right now. Of course, your mind's probably not going to want to, but that's OK. It's just the, the intention to see that there might be a simpler way of just being with this moment, even if it's for a second, and then just notice what the mind does, and to be OK with that, and to come back. And often what we need to renounce is our judgment about what our minds are doing. 
not renouncing what our minds are doing, because you don't have a lot of control over that. But sometimes we have a little bit more, say, around how much we're going to follow the, 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 the judging about what the mind is doing. But of course, bringing it back. So let's give it a try. So feel free to, maybe you might want to stand up and move around or stretch your legs a little bit before we begin. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.